Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Also, if you want to, you can put your finger in Isaiah chapter 60. My message this morning is entitled, A Star is Born. I haven't seen the movie, but it's probably going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. I'm just letting you know. It's got Lady Gaga in it. The same one that does the wa-na-ra-ma-na. Just like that. Today is Epiphany Sunday. All of us, or at least most of us, are Gentiles. So we celebrate on Epiphany Sunday how the Gentiles first came into awareness of Christ, His kingship, His divinity, His messianic death and resurrection. The first place in the Bible where Gentiles discover who Jesus is, is in the story of the wise men who come and travel to Jesus and give him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And we celebrate them with the carol, We three kings of Orient are. It just feels like a drinking song. It's the only Christmas song (laughs) where I want to have a big cold mug and I want to be doing this with it. Bearing gifts. We travel so far. And then I want to storm a castle. <laughs> but we, we celebrate the wise men at Christmas when in reality they were the first ones to see Jesus after Christmas. Scholars estimate that they would have seen the star when he was born and they would have found him when he was about two but we stick the wise men in the manger because we need a little ethnic diversity in that setup. The tableau is like overwhelmingly white. So if you put in three wise men from the east, you get some color in there, which is nice. It is 2019 now, everyone. But I love this story because it brings together a whole bunch of passions in my life. And as I get excited, I'm probably going to take far too long to say far too little. But I find this story extraordinary. I think about this story all the time. I think about about how weird it is and how subversive it is, how counterintuitive, how counterintuitive it is for three wise men from another country, another ethnicity, another background, another faith tradition, to see a star, travel for months and maybe years, find a king, give him three strange gifts, this king is a baby, and then they leave. So we're going to read the story and we're going to explore it together. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Before I begin, I want to say this. I am midrashing a little bit with the text this morning. I want to show you what I find inspiring about this story. I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable, but I'm putting a little parental advisory content sticker on the, have you seen those on like rap albums? You know, when there's like swearing, they put the parental advisory sticker and it warns the parents that there are words in the album that 
young listeners shouldn't hear, and probably old listeners too, right? I'm, I'm just putting the little content advisory warning. Just to be clear, I'm not going to swear this morning. <laughs> You're like, is he going to say some foul words? No, but I want to fully explore the implications of what I think this story means. And hopefully, I want to release hope to you. And hopefully, I want to release... I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to release fresh creativity to you and a greater understanding of what it means to be a community that celebrates and adores Christ. Because what happens in this story, although we rush past it in the Christmas telling, what happens in this story, I think, has profound implications for how we relate to Jesus and how we relate to the world around us. Let me read the text. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, very first thing. We have made this so Christmassy that it loses its power and its potency. This is a different religious tradition. A religious tradition that believes that the coming of a king is marked by a star in the heavens. There were always ancient pagan kings who were foretold or announced by the gods through stars appearing in the heavens. Let me underline something. This is not a Christian idea. This is not even a Jewish idea. This is a pagan idea, and pagans, following their pagan customs, see a star in the sky, and this star tells them, a new king has come. We must find him and honor him and worship him. I'd like you to sit with the strange implications of this. God speaks to pagans through their pagan practices to lead them to Jesus. They see a star and they call it his star and they follow it to find the Savior they desire to worship. I believe that Jesus is the way the truth, and the life. In fact, I'll go further and say he is the only way to the Father. There is no other way to know God but through Jesus. But I wonder, how many people are following a star? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So the wise men come and they get an audience with King Herod. Now, I don't want to get into all of the political history in the region, but all you need to know is that the Romans would conquer an, a territory and then they would leave lots of its infrastructure intact. And they would, they would Romanize 
using their infrastructure, using their roads, using their military, using their, their economic blessings on the wealthy. They would, they would culturize a place, but they would also leave some of, its, some of its culture intact so that the people were less likely to rebel. And one of the strongest examples of this is King Herod, because King Herod was both wealthy and powerful, and he had locked down the region of Judea at least 20 to 40 years before this text. And so King Herod, being super wealthy, had this mutually beneficial relationship with Rome. He was a king, but it was kind of a regent position because ultimately Caesar was still Caesar, and Caesar controlled the known world at the time. But Herod is a... I'm putting this in quotations for those who are only listening and not seeing, like the podcast listeners. Herod is a devout Jew. And so Herod gets his priests and scribes together. These are the top theologians and pastors of the time. And he says, these pagans have come to me and they have told me that a new king has come in my region. So can you search the scriptures? And sure enough, in the scriptures, they find what the star already announced. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Herod was known in a certain sense for being a worshiper. Here's why. Because Solomon's temple was largely in ruins by the time Rome was occupying Judea. And Herod used his great wealth to fund the restoration of the temple. So that in some circles it was not called Solomon's temple anymore, but was rather called Herod's temple. In fact, we have a surviving piece of Herod's temple. It's called the Wailing Wall. It's the last vestige of what the Jewish people considered to be their most holy place for their most holy faith. It's a stretch. This analogy is poor. But this would kind of be like Bill Gates funding the most beautiful crystal cathedral the world had ever seen. You would say to yourself, he must be a devout follower of Yahweh if he's willing to put his money, his energy, his reputation on the line to restoring our faith. So when Herod says to the wise men, go to Bethlehem, you follow the star, which I confirm, we confirmed by these prophecies, you follow the star, when you find him, let me know and I will come and worship him. You have to see Herod for his unique place in the story. We already know that Herod's the bad guy, right? Because a few verses later, he orders a bunch of babies to be killed. And that kind of ruins his character forever, right? He's, he's 
forever known as the villain. And that makes perfect sense. And to be honest with you, it kind of fits into the rest of Herod's MO. That was why I put devout Jew in quotation marks, because he put untold wealth and riches into restoring the temple, but he also murdered his closest relatives in order to secure the kingship, like brutally assassinated them so that no one could question his right to the throne. Some even say he murdered his own sons because he was trying to keep the throne. So it's interesting that one person who is well-versed in the scriptures and in the tradition and even spends money to protect it is so far from actually relating to God and serving him in his heart. And then there's these pagans who follow their pagan ideology and customs and it leads them directly to Jesus. And they, they didn't need the scriptures to get there. They, I used to think they saw the star and then they went, and now I'm going to read from the Jewish prophets. Oh, it says Bethlehem, let's go there. No, they simply looked where the light was and followed the light to where Christ was. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Some would say, theologically speaking, gold obviously represents his kingship. Frankincense represents his divinity, and myrrh represents his death. Prophetically, they had a sense of everything this child was. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, and sorry, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their country by another way. Here's the first implication that I'd like to suggest to you, gently, because it might make you uncomfortable, and I don't, I want you to hear what I'm saying, and I don't want you to create things that I'm not saying, okay? I wonder if there are many people that follow Christ by seeing a star, and when they find him, they realize they can't return to the old religious structure that claims they want to worship him when secretly they actually want to kill him. I wonder if some people follow the light of a star to the beauty of Christ, and then they realize some of the religious elements that represent him actually want him dead. I know it's a cliche at this point, but Gandhi said, I love your Christ, it's your Christians I can't stand. And when we talk about what is antichrist, what is against Christ and against his work, we're really talking about a force that first influences the church, not the world. We're really talking about a mark on the head and the hand, on the thinking and the action of a people who are tempted to turn toward empire and toward violence and towards dominance and towards control then we are talking about pagans, secular people, 
who only know enough to follow a light and don't know any better and realize once they see the baby, they can't go home the same way they came. Here's one example of this, and this person is probably one of my favorite historical figures, and I consider him a great inspiration, and I'm looking forward to meeting him one day. His name is Vincent Van Gogh. Vincent Van Gogh is an incredible painter, incredible force on art history, but he's also become relegated to a cliche. The first time I saw this painting, A Starry Night, it was put up on a laminated poster in my English class. And all I could think as a 16-year-old was, wow, that is not an accurate depiction of the moon. That moon is far too big. I found out later that Van Gogh also felt that the moon and the stars were too big, and he didn't actually like this as much as the rest of us do. But the incredible thing about Van Gogh was that when he found his calling... He never wanted, at first, to paint. He wanted to be a minister. And so he served a Methodist ministry, translating the Bible into other languages for missions projects. And very shortly after beginning this, this was in his 20s, very shortly after beginning this, he moved from his conviction to share the gospel into a small mining community, and he committed himself to the poor, but the local priesthood did not like his affinity with the poor. He, they felt like he was defiling the esteem of their office. And so they said to him that he was undermining the dignity of the priesthood. Some debate whether Vincent held on to faith throughout the whole struggle of his life, but though he faced severe depression and ill health, he maintained a capacity for wonder that lived on in his art. He once wrote, For my part, I know nothing with any certainty, but the sight of the stars makes me dream. I think there are many people who have seen the beauty of Christ and the mystery and the majesty of who he is overwhelms them but it doesn't fit into the current religious framework. And the current religious framework feels antagonistic toward what they have discovered. And so because of this, they feel like they can't return to the way of Herod and they have to go home another way. They can't live the way they lived before they saw Christ, but they can't do what the king has been telling them to do either. And this leads me to what I'm most excited to talk about, which is that I really believe that all creativity was given to humanity to connect us to the divine. The other most amazing thing about Vincent van Gogh's life was that he didn't pick up a paintbrush until he was 30. And he died at the age of 37. So one of the most profound influences on art history started long after most of us have quit and ended long before most of us have really gotten good and made a huge difference that, none, that he did not get to see in his lifetime. And he didn't do it because he was trying to make a difference. He didn't do it because he was even trying to serve the Lord. There's much debate whether or not he would have even considered himself a Christian 
after being, in a sense, betrayed by the priesthood he tried to serve. But all we know is that his influence on culture and art stemmed from not his certainty, but the fact that the sight of the stars made him dream. See, I I think that in the story, there was one star that led a group of wise men to the manger. Not to the manger, I'm sorry. (laughs) To the Christ child. But I think all art, in its truest sense, is like a star in the heavens that leads us to the beauty and the mystery of Christ. I believe that every star in the heavens is leading somebody somewhere. And that in this sense, I think the Franciscans are right, that all creation preaches the gospel. The problem with this, and the thing that makes us uncomfortable, is that the scribes and the priests can confirm it in their scriptures, but they can't secure it into a tight, neat, little theological package. So we have a whole bunch of people who are are totally gripped with beauty and mystery and they don't fit into our boxes we can't consider them christians because they don't even consider themselves christians but they're seeing a light in the heavens and they're following it it's not leading them to certainty but it's but it's deepening their conviction and whatever van gogh saw when he painted story night somehow hundreds of years later, ended up on a laminated poster in my English classroom for me to see. Isaiah chapter 60 says this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. I really believe, again, we've made this into into a theology of doing good works for Christ. And I think that that is an a right way to interpret this verse. But I also think that whenever you see the beauty of Jesus, his light shines on you. The the star you're following shines on you, but it also illuminates and enlivens you to express something yourself. Like for myself, because I love writing and I love writing music and playing music, when I get to engage with something that has the beauty and the mystery of heaven within it, I feel inspired to create something myself. And I know you're all guilty of this too. Here's why. Because when you watch Chef's Table on Netflix, you immediately have to go to the pantry and eat something. And it's never as good as what they have on the show. But suddenly, the Spirit of God comes upon you, and there is a groaning and a yearning, as Romans says, and suddenly you find yourself shoving your face full of Cheez-Its, going, oh, I wish this was filet mignon, but I have to eat something. And I'm, I'm making a joke, but I actually think this is true. I think that the nature of art and creativity, when it captures beauty and mystery, it's self-perpetuating. It's catalytic. It does something inside us that compels us to a form of worship. The expression that comes off of creation, that comes off of other artists who have inspired us, comes off of a great conversation with a friend, suddenly it seeps into who we are and we find ourselves compelled to add our voice to the choir. 
And well, I watch Chef's Table and I would prefer filet mignon to Cheez-Its. I will settle for the Cheez-Its because when I see the beauty of what they're making, I just have to eat something. Even if I just ate something. Isn't that the craziest part? Like, this is why I hate when I go upstairs and my parents are watching a cooking show because I'm like, I know I've eaten enough. I've consumed enough calories. This is going to make me gluttonous, but I see it and it's just so beautiful. I'm like, man, I got I to gotta find something. I believe that creativity is a, is a channel of connection with the divine. All creativity. Not just the kind you like. Some of you may know this, some of you may not, but I'm actually writing screenplays because I'd like to see him. I'd like to take a son, my son to a movie I helped write. And I had someone say to me, it's so great that you're doing that. You know, you're going to put the message of the gospel in your films. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm just trying to tell a good story. I'm just trying to capture something beautiful because beauty is its own reward. And everything true speaks of the truth. And every way that leads to him is the way. And everything that is beautiful in the universe speaks of the beautiful one. Whether or not you use the right theological language or whether you use your own pagan customs, if it gets you there and if it reveals the divine to you, this is where we're getting uncomfortable, right? If it reveals the divine to you, if it expresses the beauty and the mystery of Christ, then who am I to say, like the scribes and the Pharisees supporting Herod, that this person is or is not within the will of God and on the way toward him? <laughs> Here's what Van Gogh said about this. I tell you, if one wants to be active, one must not be afraid of going wrong. One must not be afraid of making mistakes now and then. Many people think that they will become good just by doing no harm, but that's a lie. That way lies stagnation, mediocrity. Just slap anything on when you see a blank canvas staring you at the face like some imbecile. You don't know how paralyzing that is. The stare of a blank canvas which says to the painter, you can't do a thing. The canvas has an idiotic stare and it mesmerizes some painters so much that they turn into idiots themselves. Many painters are afraid in front of the blank canvas, but the blank canvas is afraid of the real passionate painter who dares and who has broken the spell of you can't once and for all. Life itself too is forever turning an infinitely vacant, dispiriting, blank side towards man on which nothing appears any more than it does on a blank canvas. But no matter how vacant and vain, how dead life may appear to be, the man of faith, of energy, of warmth, who knows something, will not be put off so easily. He wades in and does something and stays with it. In short, he violates, he defiles, they say. Let them talk, those cold theologians." I believe there are two ways of moving through a beautiful universe. One is to see the word make, made flesh. And the other is to see the flesh made words again. I'm not against theology, but any theology that takes the beauty and the mystery of Christ the person and makes him into Christ the principles, 
is antichrist in nature. Have you ever seen something beautiful like a painting or a film, and then you go to say something about it, and you find that you are not able to capture it? You're like, oh, that was, that was just good. I just, I just liked that. That was amazing. I just loved it. I just, I'd love to see it again sometime. If you're, you know. That's, I, I sat in the theater after I watched 12 Years a Slave for 20 minutes, just weeping. And someone said to me afterwards, did you like that movie? And I didn't even know. I wasn't sure. I just watched 200 people be subjugated to suffering and death in slavery. And he finally gets free and he reconciles with his family. And I'm like, I have no idea whether that entertained me. I know I never want to see it again. But I know I'll never be the same. The question, did I like it? I don't want to put words to what I'm feeling right now. Sometimes theology is an attempt to reverse the incarnation. It's to take the beautiful mystery of Christ and put him into neat, tidy packages where we can decide who is in and who is out. And when this happens, we feel better, we feel more certain, but we also get paralyzed by what Van Gogh calls the blank canvas. We stop creating. All we do is protect what we already have. And this is what happened to Herod. He built the temple, and he had entered into a truce with both Caesar and the God of the Jews. All he cared about was securing his own place in life. The most beautiful thing he ever built would one day be torn down by the occupiers who had permitted him to live there. And the moment his place in life felt threatened, he, he went on a murderous rampage against children. I think a lot of what passes for moral righteousness is actually just cowardice. I think a lot of people just don't move through the world. They just stay in one place. They've decided that they're right and they let the blank canvas win. If you want to be a painter, you should paint. Even if it sucks and it's ugly and it scares the dog. I think you should. And I don't think you should do it so that one day you can put little Christian messages into your art. I think you should do it just because it will hopefully be beautiful. And even if it's not beautiful, even if it's but ugly, it's an expression of what God has given you to do. And if I can be honest with you, in all creativity, you are going to suck for a long time. And you have to make peace with that. Because you're moving through the universe looking for a star. That leads you to a child. Like, think about this. They're pagans. They find a baby. They worship him, and then they leave. Are they Christians? Do we know? Is that the point of this story? You're right. No. <laughs> like, I had this conversation with a friend the other day. They were talking about a loved one, a mentor in their life who no longer professes Christ, no longer considers themselves a Christian, in fact, thinks that church and religion are evil and ugly, and in some cases, they might be right. But they said, I just, I just feel for them because they're, they're criticizing me and they're, they're digging in at me because I'm still committed to this church and these people. I said, I want you to know that the Holy Spirit's agenda is not to get your mentor to confess a theology again. 
Like, believe me, I'm happy when someone who has walked away from professing faith in Christ returns and says, I believe in Jesus. But the only story we have of a prodigal returning doesn't even get the right words out. He just gets love and belonging before he can haphazardly try to repent. So when we talk about people who no longer profess Christ, one of the things we have to remember is that the goal is not to get them back on our theological side. That's not the point. That's not what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in their lives. Because they've seen a star, and when you see a star, you can't go back the way you came. You actually are forever changed. So what I said to this person was, I said, I said, I know that you feel like you've lost a hero in your life, but I want you to know that the Holy Spirit is still leading them to Christ. Just might not be the professed theology of Christ, at least not yet. Speaking of stars, if Christ can lead you in and draw you home a different way, what about the star of a star is born? Lady Gaga put this on Instagram six months ago. Thank you, Father Duffel, for a beautiful homily, as always, and lunch at my pop's restaurant. I was moved today when you said, the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, but the food that God gives us. When Lady Gaga put this on Instagram, she was barraged by a number of Christians who needed to remind the more sensitive Christians among them that Lady Gaga was not a real Christian. And I read the articles. And it mostly had to do with her, like, being naked half the time and singing about sexually provocative things and wearing meat dresses, right? It's like, yeah, you know, she might be a Christian privately, but, like, she's not a good influence, so just, like, yeah, that was nice that she put that out there, but just don't, don't treat her as one of us. And then this is what she said in response. She actually read these articles. She says, Mary Magdalene washed the feet of Christ and was protected and loved by him, a prostitute, Somebody society shames and judges as if her body are a man's trash can. He loved her and he did not judge. He let her cry over him and dry his feet with the hair of a harlot. We are not just celebrities. We are humans and sinners, children. And our lives are not void of values because we struggle. We are equally forgiven as our neighbor. God is never a trend, no matter who the believer. I'd like to suggest to you that every time you make a theology to decide who is in and who is out, you automatically end up on the wrong side of the line. When, the, when these same Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus and said, what is the sum of the law and the prophets? Jesus said, the Lord is one, which means what I'm about to say next is one. Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. God is one, and that's actually one commandment, not two. You can't do one without the other. So then someone says, the lawyer, right? It's always the lawyer. <laughs> it's always the lawyer. Have you ever read the legal print? Like you could, be, you could be agreeing to sell your firstborn and you have no idea, right? Like 30 paragraphs in, like notwithstanding the foregoing, the above mentioned shall, it's like you have no idea what you're agreeing to. The lawyer goes, who is my neighbor? And of course, Jesus tells a story of how two religious leaders see a man bleeding on the side of the road and go around him. The hero of the story is the good Samaritan. Now to us, Samaritan is just a word for a place. 
It's just a people group in the Bible. It's like the Hebazites and the Jebusites and the who's a, like it just, it doesn't land with us. So allow me to contextualize it for you. A man was lying bleeding on the side of the road and a pastor saw him suffering. Decided that he needed to start the service on time. And he heard an ambulance in the distance and he knew that someone would come to help this man because the road was pretty well-traveled and well-lit. So he prayed for him and decided to go to church anyway. And then a theologian saw this man bleeding on the side of the road and he realized that perhaps God had a will for him in his suffering. And he decided that if the man was still there on his way back, he would definitely help him. But he didn't want to empower somebody who was just a victim, who was maybe faking it in order to get attention or money. So he too went around him. And then the good homosexual came along. Or the good abortionist saw the man suffering and went to him, put him in his car, took him to the hospital, stayed with him through the night, said, does this man have any family? Until you find his family, I will be here and I will be his emergency contact. Which one has loved God and loved neighbor? Which one has fulfilled all of the law and the prophets? Which one is following the way of Christ? The person we agree with and are comfortable with? The person who has life right? Or the person who sees suffering and moves towards it? This is why so many non-Christians are better than Christians. <laughs> this is why so many atheists are way more virtuous. They didn't get there from another way. There's only one way to Christ. If they have Christ-likeness inside them, it's because they know Christ. Just not in the way we know they know Christ. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. I stood in MoMA in New York in front of the real starry night. To be honest with you, it looked a little better on the poster. I'm just kidding. It was intense and intimidating to see the real thing. And perhaps it was one of the many forgeries that they switch in and out, right? Because they, they have to keep it under certain lights and under certain air temperature and keep the dust away, right? They employ a little guy to just flick the little dust particles off the canvas. They don't, but they do have a really big black guy that's standing right by the painting going, no, nope, no closer, no closer. And everyone's like, okay. <laughs> I stood there and watched person after person have a profound encounter with God by staring at one of the most famous pieces of art in human history. Here Van Gogh wanted, all he wanted was to serve the Lord. And what he ended up doing shaped the lives of untold millions. In even some small way, he put the stars in front of them for them to follow. Some art historians, they're not theologians, some art historians believe that by the composition of the canvas and the choice of colors, Van Gogh has actually hidden a cruciform theology in the way he constructed the piece. But he never claimed that. He might not have even done it intentionally. He was just trying to show us something beautiful. And I believe that beautiful thing leads us to Christ. 
Lift up your eyes all around and see. They gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant, and your heart shall thrill and exult. I believe that this sort of flourishing leads us together into family. If everything I say leads to the implication that I think that the church doesn't matter or that it doesn't mean anything to be a Christian, that's not at all what I'm saying. In fact, I believe the exact opposite. You see, we are the ones who incarnate the truth that other people are looking for. Other people follow a star and find something beautiful and it transforms their life. But we are the ones who are given not just language, but relationships and values to actually enflesh what other people are only grasping at. So if you think I'm telling you that being a Christian doesn't matter or coming to church doesn't matter, heavens no. Heavens no. I believe the local church is the hope of the world. But I believe a lot of people need to see the beauty they've only seen in art and in cinema and in the bad painting they did one weekend. They are looking for that beauty to be captured in a community of people who come together as daughters and sons, as brothers and sisters. I believe there's two ways to live in the world, the way of Herod and the way of the wise men. Herod possesses what is right. The wise men follow what is beautiful. Let me just say one thing first. The Bible calls them the wise men. The, the way they conduct themselves in this story is wise. How they move through the story is, in my mind, a wise way for us to live. Herod tries to possess what is right. The wise men, those of us who are wise, follow what is beautiful. Herod maintains hierarchy. Wise men submit to a baby. Herod stays where he is. Wise men come and go with the Holy Spirit in community. You're supposed to look for the shine in everyone and in everything. I hope that today is permission for you to see that a star is shining and leading you to the baby even now. That thing that you love. I had someone come to me. They said this. They said, now that I'm a Christian, I need to burn my comic book collection, right? Like I shouldn't be spending all this time reading about superheroes. It's a waste of time. I should be in the Bible. I said, please don't do that. I said, and if you're going to, like if that's what you have to do, then please give them to me. There might be some money in there. And even if there isn't, I just love reading them. They're just, it's just good art. In fact, then he came to me and found my comic book collection, and he discovered that some of my comics are worth like 200 bucks. And he ministered to me. I call him my comic book dealer. Joseph, he's not here this morning. I call him my dealer. He hooks me up. He's like, this is what's happening in the world of the X-Men. I'm like, great, tell me about it. We can see the star calling us to Christ. I would encourage you, do not suppress your creative instincts anymore. Look for the light shining in everyone. It will lead you to the baby, and you will never be able to, to go home the same way you came. All creativity is a quest to see him, and once you see him, you will be forever changed. So I'd like to just pray for you. Here's what I'd like to pray. I'd like to pray very simply that a fresh spirit of creativity would be released in your life. And what I mean by that is that you would be able to be as brave as Van Gogh says you can be, that you could look at the blank canvas and go, 
I'm going to defy that blank canvas. I'm going to put something on it. Even if it's terrible, I'm going to do something to express myself because I know it leads to an encounter with Christ. For you, it might not be painting. For you, it might be vehicle restoration. It might be singing in the shower. Like, to be honest with you, some of you don't sing because you think my voice is crappy. And you know what? It might be crappy. But even if it is crappy, you could end up on the piano one day. Because <laughs> that's what happened with me. I didn't want to sing ever again. My sister is the, is the singer in the family. And I was like, I guess I'll just be the drummer. And then our worship leader quit. And it was Saturday. And I have been on the piano ever since. I think you have something inside you that you have no idea how beautiful it is. You have no idea. You know when Van Gogh painted this? He painted this after a mental breakdown when he was confined to a mental hospital. This is the view from out of his window. And I'm not even saying that the story always has a happy ending. Seven years later, he, he most likely took his own life. But even in the midst of that tragedy and pain and chaos, you can do something beautiful. The one thing he wanted to lead people to Christ was the one thing he accomplished by accident. Just because a 30-year-old man decided to pick up a paintbrush. You're in here and you're saying to yourself, I, I don't have it in me. You do. The first thing God gave you when he breathed on you and gave you his spirit was the capacity to create. Be fruitful and multiply. Of course, that means something else in one context. But hey, it's an expression of creativity. Some of you moms are in the room. You're going, I, I don't have time for creativity. All I have is my kids. What, what a better... What, what could be possibly more creative than bringing a life into the world? <laughs> oh. The last thing I'll tell you is what, what Van Gogh said about Christ. He said, Christ alone of all the philosophers, magicians, etc., has affirmed eternal life as the most important certainty, the infinity of time, the futility of death, the necessity and purpose of serenity and devotion. He lived serenely as an artist greater than all other artists, scorning marble and clay and paint, working in living flesh. In other words, this peerless artist, scarcely conceivable with the blunt instrument of our modern, nervous, and obtuse brains, made neither statues, nor paintings, nor books. He maintained in no uncertain terms that he made living men immortal. What was Christ's creativity? Christ's creativity was renewing all creation, beginning with human hearts and lives. If you don't want to make a bad attempt in the kitchen, if you don't want to try your hand at a blank canvas, take someone out for coffee and treat your conversation as the pinnacle of your creativity. Make your words paintings that give color and richness to the lives of your friends. When you spend time with your children, put your phone down, look them right in the eyes, and give them just the eye contact that can reshape and encourage their souls. I'm saying this to myself, by the way. 
It's not just about being right. It's not just about having the right theology. It's about expressing yourself in the universe. Because I believe every star, every star leads to the baby.